Growth stories, life lessons, turning points, service to others, truth, no bullshit. Adding value, no smoke and mirrors, being the pressure, third down and 10, win or learn, always the underdog with a chip on your shoulder. These are the things that I think about when I talk to this group. From service academy fleet leaders, NFL players, NASCAR drivers, tech gurus, private equity, small business, big business, to the entrepreneurs making the way of the future, winning at all costs with uncompromised integrity, paying the price of admission. Let's go. Here we go. J.E. The major. <laughs> Remember how you used to say that with the major when we uh, yeah, sprint together? That was, that was a good time. <laughs> major Jordan Eddington, everybody. Uh, Marine Corps infantry officer by trade from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, went to Taft, Taft High School. You know, teammates with uh, Ray and Bella and Mike Reos. A lot of folks don't know Mike Reos, but uh, Mike went to the, the prep school. And a uh, an Air Force guy by the name of Nick. We don't all know Nick, but he was your he was your bestie back in the day, right? Yeah, still is nice. Uh, Navy football 09, class of two thousand ten. Played some outside, inside linebacker, and a fullback. Um, and you were my game night roommate, dude. Like when we traveled, yeah. you're my roomie. Yeah. Yep. Back in the day. Shoot, that was like, man, it's like 10 years ago. It's crazy. Um, started, More than 10. Yeah, for sure. Started your career um, washing cars. Then became a turkey leg salesman at Six Flags. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We had season passes, dude. I was all about it. Uh, you know, real lucky back in the day. And that was one thing that my mom did for us is Six Flags season passes because our family's in San Antonio. So. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, who knows, you know, you may have sold me a turkey leg a long time ago. Um, and then the Marine Corps came around after, you know, the whole Academy thing. And, uh, you went straight into the Marines. What was the, what were the jobs you had in the Marine Corps? Um, so my first job was a platoon commander at second LAR. Um, light armed reconnaissance battalion, uh, went there in September of 11. Um, the battalion was still deployed at, uh, it's deployed in Afghanistan at the time. So it was like me and like four other dudes, like just fucking around for like two months, not doing anything. Um, so it was there platoon commander there, uh, chopped over to one six uh, still doing LAR things, but went to one six to be a, uh, LAR and like cat platoon commander. When you say uh, deployed L- on the Mew with, when you say LAR yeah. and cat, what do you mean by that? So LAR is light armored reconnaissance. Uh, they roll around in these eight wheeled vehicles called LAV 25s, like light armored vehicle 25 designates the 25 millimeter chain gun that they have on the vehicles. Um, and then cat is combined anti armor team. Nice. So it's, uh, back then they were like rolling around in, uh, gun truck Humvees. Like some had toes mounted, some had Mark 19, some had 50, some had 240. So when when you talk infantry, you talk, you know, I'm on foot, you know, every Marine's a rifleman, but when you get into the, you know, LAR, the, you know, 
what you're talking about now. It's like, it's about the vehicle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it's totally about the vehicle, right? Like, um, we don't, we don't walk in LAR, right? Nice. You, you ride around. Um, so people like make fun of you, like, oh, you're not real grunts, <laughs> like whatever. Yeah. Um, cool. But that was cool. Right. So that was my first three and a half, four years. Um, then I went to Paris Island and I was a series commander, uh, company commander there, and then a battalion executive officer. Uh, once that was done, uh, I went to a school called MCCC, Maneuver Captain's Career Course. It's like the Army's version of uh, EWS, Expeditionary Warfare School that the Marine Corps does. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about all this stuff more when we get to the story. But um, So that was six months. Then I uh, head back to good old Camp Lejeune, checking the 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. Um, a company commander there. I take him on a SP MAGTAF, uh, special purpose MAGTAF, crisis response, Africa deployment. Um, come back from that, get picked to be the operations officer. Um, so then I do the the 24 MU that I just got back. Well, I guess it's been like, God, it's been like a year and a half since I got back from that thing. Um, get back from that. And while I was deployed, I found out I got selected to be a recruiting station commanding officer. So RSCO, uh, I got sent to the great city of Houston, H town. Nice. Um, and now I'm here in Houston living in third ward, the tray <laughs> third ward. What does that mean? Third ward. Yeah. It's like the hood. So like, <laughs> all right. So here's, so, um, Houston is like such a diverse city, right? Yeah. Like, and when people be, when people are like, I'm from Houston, sometimes they mean like, I'm from like the woodlands or like I'm from Conroe yeah. or like I'm from Pearland, like, and it, because the city is so big, like you never really leave the city, yep. but like Houston proper, um, is like, I, know, I live inside the 610 loops, right? So there's a big circle road that goes around the city. My sister lives in Houston. And one of the things she's, she's okay. given me like somewhat of an overview, but keep going with that overview. Cause no one knows how Houston is, is yes. broken down. So that'll be good. So with the, with the job I have now, it's, 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 it's a lot of work. Um, so I wanted to be able to like maximize my time at home when I get it. Yes. So I wanted to live inside the loop because my, my office is like literally in the center of downtown, like the absolute center of downtown. Um, so it takes me like 15 minutes to get to my office from my house, which is like a ridiculously, short commute in Houston. Um, so we were, uh, we were looking for houses like inside the loop, but I wanted to have like a garage. So I could have my garage gym and I wanted to have a backyard cause I got two Dobermans. Um, nice. and, uh, some, a little like fucking, uh, what is that dog? Yeah. But a, uh, yeah, but it's like some bougie ass designer dog, but I mean, <laughs> she's cool. She's cool. Uh, Sounds so, like you. <laughs> so uh so we were like looking and like that's super hard to find inside the loop for like a reasonable price so we found this neighborhood um but it's in third ward third ward is kind of like the hood it's like southeast houston and but my neighborhood is like a, it's like a little gated community so it's like it, the neighborhood is called the oasis and it's literally like an oasis because <laughs> like you go outside of my neighborhood and like it's fucking gunshots it's like um like police are like chasing 
uh, people on like four wheelers. Do you have kids? Like, you don't bikes. have any kids in school yet, right? No, 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 no. That's why I could live where I live. Exactly. Um, so, um, you, I, you heard about, you know what twanging is, right? I don't. Okay. So in Houston, people have like, like swangers, right? It's like these rims that like poke out and like they have 83 or 84 spokes on them. Nice. And like some like poke out like two or three feet. Like from ones that could uh, pop a tire while they're riding. <laughs> I mean, you probably, you probably could. Nice. But, um, so like, I was thinking about, Ma- I, I was thinking about Mad Max, like the Mad Max movies where they're like, yeah, yeah. And they got like, you know, cheat codes on their tires. So yeah, you could think of it like that. Okay. Um, but like, it's like old school Cadillacs that are like candy painted or like metallic and like, it's like fancy ass cars. And every Sunday, my Jones. they take like, yeah, for real they take like these cars out and they swing like, and then swinging is like swerving back and forth on the road. Mm. And they take up the whole lane. Um, and that happens like on the road. That's like right in front of my house is like the main place where people swing on Sundays. <laughs> so I, I fucking love it here, man. It's, it's cool. Nice. Um, you have okay. a big story that, that you, you know, with your Kabul experience, um, and there was actually, uh, you know, an HBO documentary on it, uh, with that, you know, with that final troop pullout, which we'll get into at some point, but, um, you know, now in Houston, settled down, sounds like you're doing good, uh, going into the memory section, uh, I- I'll take the first one, you know, is okay. Jordan Eddington was a sleeper of the group. He's a super sleeper. He's super quiet. Um, goes into quiet mode, super focused on what is important. So when it comes to priority, prioritizing what's important, you knew how to do that well, right? Um, you know, and even I'm like, I'm trying to set this up with you. And over the weekend, yesterday was Saturday. You're mm-hmm. like, hey, I just got off work at like 930 my time. So like <laughs> your time. So um makes a lot of sense mike matthews mike said you were you were guarded you were that guarded guy you know that really you had to earn your respect in order for you to open up Uh, but once that respect was earned it was attained that that you would go to war for whoever's respect you attained right so uh, and that you were always uh, a guy that that Mike wanted in your corner. So um, that's kind of that's that's pretty humbling, man, to hear somebody yeah. say that about me. So shout out, Mike. Yeah, well, I mean, y'all worked together, so we were on the same sprint ball, sprint football coaching team, and you know, like yeah. I'm sure Mike experienced some some heated arguments with you, you know, right? Like as any. <laughs> Direct report might go through and uh, and peer at the same time. Like that's the toughest thing to do is to lead your peers and to be um, you know supportive of each other. And you know w- when he told me that 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 was my takeaway. Is like y'all probably got heated a couple times, but had he had so much respect for you, right? So yeah, I, I love Mike Matthews, man. Um, one of my, one of the, the funnest memories I have with Mike is uh, 
you know, it being like a, like a Tuesday or like a, a weeknight, right? And me and Mike would go to like Dock Street and just get hammered. Like we would get hammered. And you remember we had to do the obstacle course like early in the morning yep. or the, uh, the endurance course. And like we would get home, it'd be like two, three o'clock in the morning. We got to get up at like five to make it there on time. And instead of going to sleep, like I would go to Mike's house and we would play uh, like NHL hockey <laughs> on, <laughs> on like whatever, like PlayStation or whatever. And uh, he got me like into hockey for like a short period of time. Nice. Um, and I remember one morning we like overslept and we were like, oh, fuck, like, you know, like we're like we're screwed. Because I think this was like the second time we had done it. And Major Maury, like he was kind of getting mad at us. Um, but luckily that morning it was raining. And the e-course got canceled, like so. It was just like just pure luck. <laughs> we didn't get destroyed. Nice. They yeah, got lucky on that one for sure. Uh, let's see what's next. Um, Clint Sovey, he said, "You're the best last semester roommate ever." Did y'all room together? Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, so the last semester he came to live with me and uh, TJ Topiser in like the back corner of. Eight zero, because that was um, his like with, fifth year senior. Yeah, his like twelfth year yeah. or whatever it was <laughs> for Clint. Yeah, um, but yeah, he came and he lived with us. Like, and me and TJ were pretty chill. Um, you know, we would like we were hardly at school. Like, we would just we picked that room strategically because it was literally right next to the the exit. So like, me and TJ would just leave, like. <laughs> all the like, we hard, like hardly what's important yeah, hardly ever at school yeah yeah gotcha Nishak he said you had 12 personalities from Robert E. Lee to Malcolm X and all your <laughs> yeah all your voices yeah man right? I used to I saw so I, I got away from the voices but I used to have like one for everything yeah, but yeah, man, it, God, this is bringing back some good memories. Yeah, and Jimmy D, I reached out to Jimmy D last uh, last minute, Dryden. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, he said y'all had a, a fun summer sailing cruise. Uh, we spent the whole time talking like Al Capone. <laughs> yeah, and ran into a summer into a storm. Yeah, God, man. Um, yeah, we did sailing. We sailed from. Um, annapolis to newport and uh man i remember like that was so much fun because it was me jimmy d and Corey finnerty on the same boat yeah. and like you know some some fucking narps or whoever the fuck some joes um and this old ass man who was like a fighter pilot in vietnam uh and i <laughs> i remember we were like talking with them once like i think it was all three of us and we were like oh what'd you do in the navy and he was like i flew fighter jets over vietnam and like that's all he said and we were like what the fuck <laughs> like, and that's all it's needed. not right that was crazy yeah man that was a good time awesome well that's the end of my uh intro and and memories it's time for jordan to start talking and tell us where you came from and tell us your story man all right man so uh you know, I'm, I'm from San Antonio, Texas, uh, born and raised there. Um, you know, I'm the oldest of the oldest of four. 
siblings. Um, my parents had me when they were like super young, man. I can't imagine having a kid at, you know, like 20 and 21 or 21 and 22, whatever age they were. Um, you know, so I, as, as I grew up, um, you know, they were, they were figuring things out. Like they were becoming adults while they were trying to raise a child. Uh, it took me a long time to like really understand how difficult it probably was for them to do that. Um, but I think because of that, I became, um, like very independent, like very self-reliant. Um, and like, I, 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 I can look at this two ways. Like my parents either really trusted me, um, or, you know, they figured that like, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. And that is what it is. Cause I had like no rules in like high school. Like I just, you know, I, I didn't do anything like super bad. Um, <clears throat> but like, you know, I would leave on Friday, sometimes come back on Monday or come back on Sunday for school on Monday. Sometimes I just go to school. Um, you know, so, but like I said, like they were trying to figure it out. Um, my mom's a teacher. My dad has his own business. I think when like around middle school, maybe I think it was like middle school. Um, my dad had an office downtown. His business was like doing pretty well. Like we're living pretty good. And, uh, they were building a hotel next to his office and they ran out of money to build the hotel. So they lit the hotel on fire to get the insurance money. And it, it burned down my dad's office too. So he lost like everything. Mm. So they, we went from, you know, living like, you know, comfortably to, you know, like, uh, you know, having no, like having to be strategic about, you know, do we pay the water bill or do we pay the electric bill, uh, this month? Right. And it was a struggle for a while. I think that contributed to like my independence as well. Like I wanted to, I wanted to be able to take care of myself, right. To be self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, but you know, like I said, my parents, they did, they worked super hard. They did everything they could uh, for us. Um, and my, my siblings, they benefited from like my parents' resiliency. Um, Cause like, I remember when I got to naps or maybe it was at the Naval Academy. Anyway, one of those two, um, my dad sent me a picture on my phone on of, of like the new house that they just bought. It was like nice in a nice neighborhood. Um, so, you know, my siblings, they didn't really have to deal with deal with that a lot because they were just so young. They didn't even realize. But, yeah, so, um, you know, played played football, uh, basketball and ran track like my whole life. Uh, I gave up basketball when I went to high school because like me, you know, in Texas, like you. You, you just play football, right? You don't, there's very few football players that play basketball. Yeah. Um, Got to pick and, then, and then you run track. Yeah. Yeah. You got to, and then you run track so you can stay in athletic period for football. True. Um, so we had a pretty good football team in my high school, went to state my freshman year. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get moved up, uh, to the varsity for playoffs. I never played, but like I was on the roster went to all the games and shit. Um, so I think uh, that kind of started, that kick started the recruiting process for me. Cause like you see a freshman on the, 
on the roster of a state championship team. I think we we're like big five A. Yeah. Also, so like Taft is a you know like it's or was back in the day. So. Yeah, shit, they big used time. to be. It ain't no more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, so I think that like kind of kickstarted it. Um, and put we had some like really solid dudes on that team. I think we had a couple guys go to TCU. One guy went to Oklahoma State um, from that roster. So like San Antonio, I feel like is historically under recruited. Um, so yeah, uh, and then sophomore year, you know, I'm I'm the starting running back for like the first maybe like eight games of the season. Um, started getting recruited fairly heavily. I don't know how it is in today's recruiting world, but like back then, you know, like if you got a handwritten letter, like you knew the school was like serious about you. So I remember after my first game um, of my sophomore year, had a decent game. uh, And I remember coming in, you know, on Monday or Tuesday or whatever it was the next week. And I had like a stack of letters on my locker. And I was like, oh, shit, like, this is pretty cool. And a lot of them were like handwritten letters. Like, I remember I got uh, the first letter I got from Texas A&M was handwritten from the recruiting coach. But like, I can't remember what they were called. They had like these girls who would like assist, the, like help with the recruiting efforts. <laughs> um, Yeah. And like that first letter had like lipstick kisses on it and shit like. And my dad played ball at Texas A&M. Um, so I was like, man, like, this is going to be great. Right. So sophomore year happens. Um, moving to junior year, we change offenses. Uh, so I, I train. I, they tried to put me at wide receiver and like, I just, I can't play wide receiver. I can't catch that good. I can't really run routes. Like I was fast. Um, but in sophomore year, I also went to, I also went to state, the state championship track meet in the 100. I was running like a 10-6 or something. Um, so junior year comes around, I'm playing linebacker. Um, still getting recruited pretty heavily. Um, I mean, I got like, you know those like Rubbermaid containers, like the big like Rubbermaid containers? Yep. I have, I don't know if they're still <laughs> in my parents' house, but I had like three or four of those like filled with, letters yeah i got um i got a, like a half of one so like right before i'm about to die i'll go through that and look at it and be like oh that was cool and then <laughs> yeah yeah right um so and then junior year is when they can start inviting you to games so like i mean i, don't, I was every weekend i was like at a ut game or a AM game or i went to baylor rice like all the all the schools that were like fairly close by. Yep. Um, but I, I only wanted to go to Texas A&M. Like my dad went there. Yeah. I grew up as a Texas A&M fan. Same here. Whatever. Right. So I wanted to play on that yeah. Texas A&M defense, man. That wrecking crew. I, that big crowd. That sway. I, that I know, energy, man. Right. They had this. They had this dude named Jackson Appel, who played like a hybrid, like basically played striker for Texas A&M. Um, and this dude, he was a stud. And every time I would go to the games, I would only watch him play. Um, cause that's a position I was getting recruited to play at Texas A&M. Um, so, you know, like junior year happens. I do well junior year. Um, 
the God, I think it's like it's in February of your junior year. So after football season is when at least back then when colleges could start like calling you on the phone and like, you know, like the coach, you know, the coach will call you and be like, Hey, like, you know, I saw you play against whatever, saw your tape. I'm excited about you, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So whatever time it was, let's just say it was like 7 PM at like 7 PM and 15 seconds. Coach Tom Riddell from Texas A&M called me. Yep. Tom Riddell. At, at seven, I remember the name. Yeah. I got the same letter. Yep. Yeah. At, sure. at, at 7 p.m. and 30 seconds, I got an offer. At 7 p.m. and 31 seconds, I was committed to Texas A&M. Like, nice. the only thing I wanted to do. Um, which, now looking back on it, man, I should have like been like, okay, like that's cool. Like, thank you. Um because every other coach that called me, like we would, we had a rule in my house, like from seven to 10 every night for whatever window of time it was like, no one could get on the phone because people were going to call me. So, but every coach that would call me and be like, we want you to come play at Arkansas. We want you to come play at Texas tech. We want you to come play at Baylor, whatever. Um, I'd be like, nah, I'm committed to a and I appreciate it. But you know, and in hindsight, I should have like, not done that um because in march of my junior year i tore my acl and my lcl fucking triple jumping triple jumping man (laughs) so yeah so and honestly like that thing was like such a huge event in my life like i think it it kind of shattered my confidence for a long time um because i like all the things that I used to be able to do, I just couldn't do anymore from a physical standpoint. Like my, my greatest attribute, I think on the field was my speed. Cause I was big, but I was also like faster than, yeah. than people thought. You're still fast after you recover from that for sure. Um, so anyway, right. And I, I learned college football as a business, right? So the, I remember uh, I went up to A&M before I had my surgery because they, they weren't sure if my ACL was torn or not. So their doctor examined me and he was like, oh, I think you're good. Like they did the little knee test and was like, I think you're good, whatever. And like, I could see like the, like the look of relief on like, I mean, it was like coach Tom Riddell was in there, coach Francione, the head coach was in there and they were like, okay, like this kid's still good. And then a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks later, I got the results from my MRI and it was torn. I called Coach Tomardall. He was like, "Okay, cool." He called me back a couple of days later and was like, "Hey, we're gonna have to take away your offer until, like, you prove that you can play at the same level you played at before." So I get my surgery on April first of two thousand and three, um, and I played in my first game in like September of the same year. So like four and a half months later, I played in a football game. Which again, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done because I didn't start playing well until the playoffs. And by that time, the playoffs of my senior year, and by that time, like all the offers are gone. They're working on like the juniors and the sophomores. Yeah. Um. So throughout this whole process, uh, my top two schools were actually Texas A&M and the Air Force Academy, <clears throat> right? Because I wanted to be a I wanted to be an A10 pilot. That was like my backup plan to nice. be an A10 pilot in the Air Force. Why is that? Um. I don't know. I was always fascinated with, with, with that. Like, 
my grandfather served in the Air Force, like during the Vietnam era. Um, he retired after like, you know, 20 something years. Um, and when I was little, we would always go to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio and watch the planes take off, right? Watch the F-16s like take off and land. And I would like salute the pilots and like they would salute me back and shit. It was like just super cool. <laughs> yeah. I know. No, um, no, I could totally see you doing that. Uh, so, you know, that's just like, I'll, just, I'll be a, I'm going to go to Texas A&M and whatever happens happens, or I'm going to join the Air Force and be an A-10 pilot. Yeah. Um, so Air Force recruited me, but I, same thing. I told them like, hey, I'm not interested. And they just went away. Like they were just like, okay, cool. Find another one. Um, but man, Coach O'Rourke, who was my recruiter out of Navy. Danny O. Um, yeah, Danny O, man. He, uh, he hit me up really early on as well and was like, hey, like, we want you to come to Navy. And I was like, I don't even know what the fuck Navy is. Like, nah, bro, I'm not doing that. I'm going to Texas A&M. Um, but he stuck around, like he would always follow up and stuff. And then, uh, Ram got recruited by him as well. Uh, Ram committed to Navy. Um, and coach Tom Riddell just kind of started to coach, uh, O'Rourke just, you know, stuck around, stay persistent. And eventually like, I just had nothing like rice. Um, rice was there at the end. I remember I got a call from the, from Tulsa like towards the end of the recruiting process. And they were like, Hey, you know, like whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you know, is it true that you tore your ACL and your LCL? And I was like, yeah, that's true. But I'm like, I'm back playing. And like literally the coach hung up, like just fucking hung up. So anyway, um, injured goods. Yeah. Navy stuck around and you know, like at the end of the day, like I wanted, I wanted to be independent self-sufficient did a little research on the school and um it seemed like a a good opportunity to kind of change the trajectory of my life so ended up in navy man nice that's a good story then you ended up in navy um you went to naps how was that whole yeah scenario for you like you know you, you you go through all that what you just explained, but then you go, you have to go to the prep schools. Like I, I, I didn't expect having to go to this prep school and then you go to the prep school. How did that whole process work for you? So I, I knew I was going to the prep school, but I, I didn't realize until like a couple of weeks before we left that people were going to like yell at me and shit. I just had no idea. Like, I mean, you're, you don't know that stuff as a kid. And I think I remember like me, Mike and um, Ram were sitting down with Coach O'Rourke for like lunch or something. And he was like, yeah, in a couple of weeks, like you guys aren't going to be as happy with me because when you're getting yelled at. And I was like, what? Get yelled at? Like, <laughs> But the prep school. God, man, I should have got kicked out of the prep school so many times. Just doing so much dumb stuff with like Trip, like Stephen Trip, Trip Taylor. Scott Oswald, like Scott Yingling, just just doing the wildest, the wildest stuff. Like Jeremy Miles going to get in fights in nightclubs in Providence, <laughs> like yeah. just just stupid stuff. But um, now, I mean, I think the prep school was a was a good experience. 
uh, I try to explain to people like what the prep school is when I'm talking to them about Navy football. And I just tell them like, it's just a red shirt year. Think of it as a red shirt year, yeah. right? You're a red shirt freshman year where you go to get stronger and faster. And like all the, all the idiot athletes go to like learn how to do school and stuff yeah. like that. Cool. And then, uh, after that, went to the Naval, Naval Academy. How'd those four years go? I'll be honest, man. I mean, I, I love playing football at Navy. I loved it. An experience I wouldn't trade for the world. Right. But I hated the Naval Academy. I hated it. Um, I don't, I don't think now from, from the, from like the seat that I'm sitting in now, who I am now today. Um, I look back at the Naval Academy and I was like, man, that's like a, that's like a horrible leadership institution. It's like, you got, you got like midshipmen who don't know anything, like literally deciding the fate of other midshipmen who don't know anything. Like, I don't know, but I mean, that's, it was, I think if I had worked a little harder in school, I maybe not, I maybe wouldn't have hated it as much, but like, I don't know. I didn't, I I never like gave a hundred percent effort in school, which like always resulted in me like having a low GPA, (laughs) which was, was stressful at times. Um, what I, what I, what I don't think people realize at least the midshipmen like who didn't play football didn't realize is like how how much of our time was taken up by that sport um it was like in season my gpa would be like a a 2.2 and then out of season my gpa would be like a 3.1 like they're like because you just had a little bit more time to like actually do your schoolwork and stuff like that but um you know, like I'm, I met, I learned a lot at the Naval Academy and I would say I learned that I learned a lot of, from a lot of bad examples, right? A lot of bad leadership examples yep. from other midshipmen, um, from company officers. Like there was a few people that I respected, uh, that I looked up to. Like, I don't know if you remember, there was a Marine captain, uh, named Captain Lane. He's like a huge black dude, played basketball in, yep. in uh, I do. in college, like, I respected that dude because like he kept it real and like you know he you could see like that every day was a struggle for him he kept it real yeah that's awesome um but i mean you know like would i go back and go somewhere else probably not because i probably wouldn't have survived anywhere else like i needed i needed that structure uh to help me like I don't know, fucking graduate college and like, (laughs) like put a, put a path down. But yeah, from a, from an academic and like from a, I guess just a general perspective, didn't like the Naval Academy. Um, Still don't like the Naval Academy. Uh, I've met, I've met some, I met a few good officers from there in the Marine Corps. Uh, But I would say the majority of the people that I've met from the Naval Academy, especially if they didn't play a sport, um, like in particular, like, football you know i don't want to i don't want to work with you you self-entitled fucking nah it ain't me but gotcha. yeah i mean that's kind of how i feel about that got it so uh 
Navy football. What did Navy football mean to you? Give us some memories, you know, and then we'll we'll go to the career after that. God, my, my, I remember the first the first practice uh, at Navy, like during plebe summer. Um, remember, is David Mahoney and Tyler Tidwell were kind of like the leaders of the the outside linebackers, right? You had Matt Wimsat, Jay Youngin. Um, I just I just listened to his episode uh, before we came on. Um, Matt Humiston, you know, I know I'm I know I'm forgetting some of the guys, but um, I remember David was like Mahoney was like, you know, like you always got you got to talk to Coach Jones in like a certain kind of way, right? Because Coach Jones is is Coach Jones. Learning approach. Um, so, I, yeah. So, I remember uh, we're doing like you know our little warm up drills, like bag step overs and all kind of stuff. And Coach Jones sent something to me, and I was like, "Yeah." I said, "Like, yeah," back to him, and he would like stopped practice. Like what? And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah what?" And he, he he didn't call me Eddington. He called me Edison. Edison. Like, Edison. Yeah. Yes. Like I, I don't think now. I I don't think he knew my name, like at all. Ever, Edison. It's like high pitched voice. <laughs> Edison. Yep. Um, but like he stopped practicing, like just like chewed me out, and I was like, God damn, man! I'm like, I just got done with plebe summer. Like I'm tired. <laughs> like I'm my brain isn't working right. Um, but like looking up to dudes like you know Mahoney and Tidwell, Wimsat. I actually got to deploy with Wimsat my first deployment. Uh, he was the recon platoon commander and I was the, I told you I was the LAR platoon commander. Um, but like just having dudes like that and like Rob Caldwell was in my company. Um, Sobe was in my company. Um, oh my God. Why can't I remember this dude's name? Played safety. Was Sobe's roommate. I want to say his last name was like Nichols. Casey Nichols. Yeah, Casey Nichols. Like those dudes um, were like the ones who I looked up to, the ones who like took care of me, who like taught me what Navy football was all about, right? Because yeah. I mean, if you if you look at if you look at a guy like David Mahoney, right? He's like five foot ten, maybe five nine. Um, you know, undersized for a linebacker at any collegiate level. And this dude was just a baller. Like he just balled. Like he was so perfect in his technique. Like he wasn't the he wasn't the fastest dude, but because like his his preparation and his like natural football instincts were just so good. Like he would beat people to spots. He would you know just did all the little things right. Just like so technically perfect. Um yeah, but I mean, I'll be I'll be honest with you, Tony, man, like my time at Navy and it kind of it kind of goes into my price of admission, which I'll, I'll which we'll talk about at the end, but um it was my time at Navy football I feel like was was disappointing for me. Because I never I never even came close to what I thought my potential was while I was playing there. Gotcha. Um but just to be 
just to be part of that group and contribute, you know, in whatever way that I did, um, you know, the, the lessons and the, the attitude and like the physical and, and mental pain and struggle, um, that shapes who you are as a person, man. And yeah. I would not be the same. I would not be who I am today <clears throat> if it wasn't for, uh, the things that have, the things that happened while I was playing football in Navy and, and the group of men that I was around that, that shaped me and, and molded me, whether I realized it or not at the time. Right. Cause I was, I think as I've gotten older um, and I've matured and I've, you know, been, been thrust into these like leadership positions sometimes in uh, stressful and chaotic circumstances. I, I go back to some of those, like, some of those times and some of those lessons that I learned at Navy football. Like, I, I doubt you remember this. We were in fourth quarters. I can't remember what year. And I think, well, one, we were idiots because I think we went to, like, Padre Island or maybe it was Panama City. We went to both. I, didn't I think that. it was Panama City. And we drove back like the night before fourth quarters. Nice. Um, and I was like dead doing fourth quarters. And I remember telling you specifically like, Tony, <laughs> I got nothing left, man. Just tell me, don't quit. And you were like, all right, I got you. You probably don't remember that, but I, I fucking remember that. I, I, nice. I think about that like all the time. Um, <clears throat> just don't, just don't quit. Just don't quit, man. But um, God, I love playing Navy football, but like I said, overall, I feel like my time was for me personally, uh, I look, I look back at that time with like fond memories, but I also look back at it, um, with some disappointment and some regret from my, my perspective. Yeah. <clears throat> you just made my day, uh, with that, memory, <laughs> uh, because I really, I'm really interested in, in the rest of your story once we get there. Because um, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. So um, that's Navy football. Then you go yeah, in the man. Marine Corps. How's it going? Mm -hmm. So I, in the Marine Corps, right? Like my intention was not to stay in, stay in the military. My intention was not to become an infantry officer. Um, at at TBS, you know, you pick your your top MOSs like a couple of times during the six months that you're there. And yeah, we were in the my same first class. top. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my first top five MOSs were like, uh, all. So the way I picked them was at the like little career fair night or whatever it was. I went around to every single table and I was like, how often do you deploy? And everyone said that they, everyone said that they didn't deploy that made my top five list. Cause I was just like, I don't want to, I just want to do my time and get out. Um, so we did one of the fexes and I did well, um, as in a, like a leadership position and at TBS, I was still doing, I mean, I was still like, I don't know, not really a rule follower. I just kind of like did whatever. So I remember, um, I'm like walking down the hallway and my SPC, the captain who's in charge of the platoon, uh, Captain Raymond at the time, um, 
he's like, he sees me and he's like, Lieutenant Eddington. He like yells down the hallway. And he's like, what the fuck is your problem? And I was like, what? And he was like, get in my office right now. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> so you know how it is. Like you're trying yeah. to think of all the bad shit you had done and like trying to come up with stories to like justify it and like whatever. <laughs> um, so I get in his office and he like puts this piece of paper in front of me and he's like, what the fuck is this? And I look at it and it's like my MOS choices, like all ranked, you know, one to 20, whatever. And I was like, oh, that's just my, that's the jobs I want to do. And he was like, no, it's not. And I was like, yes, it is, sir. Like it's, that's what I want to do in the Marine Corps. He was like, no, your top five choices are combat arms and you don't have a fucking option. And I was like, sir, I don't want to do combat arms. And he was like, do you want some of your peers leading people in combat? And I thought about it for a second and I was like, no, I don't. And he was like, well, your top five choices are combat arms. And I was like, okay, cool. So for usually for people at TBS, like you start off and you want to be an infantry officer and then you do the field shit and all like the hikes and all that shit. And like, you're like, nah, I don't want to fucking live that life. I don't want to do that. For me, it went the opposite way. Nice. I went like from not wanting to do anything difficult to like wanting to go to arguably like the hardest getting forced into uh, it. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I mean, so I ended up putting infantry as my number one, I get infantry, go through IOC, great school. Um, you know, go to get done with that, go to LAR. The reason I wanted to go to LAR is cause um, they had units in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2010, 11, 12. Yep. Um, and th so they were always deploying. And by the end of TBS, I was like, I want to fucking go deploy. Um, but you know, right when I got there, we were, the unit was doing a workup for an Afghanistan deployment. It got canceled. Like why we were, while we were at, uh, it was EMV back then. Now it's like, then it changed to ITX. Now it's like MWX, whatever it is. Uh, at the, the big, uh, 29 the big Palms, event. big training event yeah, with yeah. so many different people that everybody comes into town to do, you know, once a quarter, big time. You deploy right after that event, right? Yeah, yeah. So we were there and our deployment got to Afghanistan got canceled. Um, so then, like, you know, the, the war in Iraq is winding down. Um, no LAVs are allowed in Afghanistan because they were getting blown up pretty bad. It's not meant to take an IED blast. Um, so I didn't think I was going to get a deployment as a lieutenant. Uh, but then, you know, I got lucky. Uh, I guess I was uh, a decent platoon commander. So they moved like the three best platoon commanders in the battalion into one company. <clears throat> that company got attached to one six. I do that deployment. Um, that's like 2000 and. 14 when isis is like at its peak um we support some operations uh in iraq which end up being operation inherent resolve which is still ongoing um but when we were there it, it wasn't it wasn't a named operation until like we were leaving theater um do that come back i tried at, at some point between me coming back and me going to Paris Island, I tried to resign from the Marine Corps because um, I got my orders got changed without my knowledge like a few times. And it really pissed me off. Um, 
but I had already accepted uh, career designation, you know, like the thing when you're, you know, I, I don't know what time, I can't remember what time frame it is, but like, yeah. basically the Marine Corps says you can stay. And if you click yes, in like the online module, you incur additional two years of service time. So I had already clicked that button, so I couldn't resign. So I ended up at Paris Island. I was super pissed off about it. I was like, I didn't want to be around drill instructors and like have to like, I don't know, like wear skivvy shirts in my camis and like have like a high and tight haircut, which I, I didn't, I didn't do. You would have been so good at that. You'd be like, oh, I didn't know. Do it, leading no. the runs and all that stuff. Like that was, no, nah, man. Nah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I go there, I go there. Right. And I'm like, just bitter. I'm just like so mad. But that experience, those three years at Paris Island, I think turned me into a real officer in the Marine Corps. How is that? Because so when while you're there, you're exposed to the full spectrum of what the Marine Corps has to offer, right? So there's very few like infantry infantry dudes at Paris Island who are drill instructors. I think at the time that I was there, there was maybe three or four infantry officers out of the, you know, 60 captains or, or so, or that are at Paris Island. Um, so I learned the value of like, there's good Marines outside of the infantry. Um, and like, you know, as a young Lieutenant, young captain in the infantry, like you're just, you'd think you're like, you think you're the fucking, you're the shit. Right. And no one's as good as you. Yeah. I'm the tip of the spear, you're like the whatever. So that, uh, that experience really provided some humility. Um, and also like if you, there's a weird culture at, at, at any of the, the depots, the recruit depots where like, they call it like the hat and belt culture, like, you know, the smoky hat and like, they wear like their little green drill instructor belt. Yeah. For anyone that's if watched you, like a drill instructor indoctrination, people yelling in your face, the smoky hat. That's what you're talking about. Watch, watch a full metal jacket, right? An Arlie army. Yeah. Like that's not, that's not far off from like what it, from what it is. Actually, We're not allowed to like, you can't like hit them and shit. That's not allowed. Um, but a lot of the other stuff is, is, is realistic. But anyway, um, if you buy into that culture as an officer, some weird shit happens, man. Some weird shit happens. Like you get kids in the shower with bleach water on the floor doing up downs, butt naked. Like you get kids jumping out of the third story window and killing themselves. Um, you know, because they're being, discriminated against because like of their religious beliefs. Uh, and that shit happened while I was there. So if you buy into that as an officer, you will, you create the conditions for bad things to happen. Yep. So I say it, it, it really turned me into a real officer because I had to create a degree of separation from my Marines yes. that I did not do as a platoon commander. Um, so, you know, I, and also that place kind of like, I talked about earlier, like, like when I, when I hurt myself in high school, that kind of shattered my confidence, right? I never, I didn't real I didn't fully regain that same confidence until I was at Paris Island. Nice. Um, and it happened because 
I did I did my series commander year. Um, I got picked to move up a little early, so I became a company commander kind of early there. I did a I did a little less than a year as a company commander, um, and the regimental commander, a guy named Matthew St. Clair, who's retired, but he was an infantry guy. He's uh, he did a he was a MUCO, an infantry battalion CO, like super legit dude. Um, and Sparky Renforth, old General Renforth, was the the commanding general of Eastern Recruiting Region and MCRD Paris Island. So there was a one of the battalions um, was losing their executive officer, and they were going to be gapped for about a year. And Colonel St. Clair called me into his office one day, and he was like, you're the best captain on Paris Island. I'm going to put you in this major's billet because I think you can handle it. And I was like, sir, I am not. I am not that good. Like, you don't want to do this. And he was like, I do. And you don't have a choice. <laughs> right. So nice. I go do that. Um, and while I was in that position, I talked to, there was a couple of really senior, like there was an infantry colonel there, Colonel Smith, whose brother is General Smith, who who's probably going to be the next commandant. Uh, I remember going into his office and I was talking to him and he was like, one thing you always got to remember is that like, there's a lot of good motherfuckers out there, yep. but you, you have to remember that you are one of those good motherfuckers. Yep. So you need to be humble, but you also need to be confident. Yep. And I was like, man, like maybe I, maybe I, I, I'm actually not too bad at this Marine Corps thing. All right. So I do that. Learn how to be an officer. Yeah, I mean, go to a school. Yeah, I'm going to cut in here with the confidence yeah. because uh, a lot of people struggle with it. Um, you know, even I've found this confidence hurdle at some point. For me, finding confidence is all about the wins. Like, rack up a few wins, I feel more confident. Like for you in that situation, where did you rack up the wins and rebuild your confidence? I think it was it was actually someone telling me that I could do something I didn't think I could do. Gotcha. And not just anybody, right? It was like someone, someone who I that, respected. Yeah. Some, someone that carried some weight in your uh yeah. mental uh you know your mental uh weight bearing community. Right? Yeah, someone who had yeah, someone who had, had been there and done that, right? Like someone who I looked up to and admired. Nice. Um, telling me that like, you can, you can do this and also telling me like, you don't have a choice. So just go figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes <clears throat> it's a, it's a compliment. Sometimes it's a, you did really well. And sometimes it is a now go do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. For sure, man. Awesome. So I, I finish at Paris Island. I get selected to go to the school, um, maneuver captain's career course it's an army school um and it is six months long and it is six months of just straight company level tactics for an infantry company um phenomenal experience um the the, the things i learned working with the army uh was not phenomenal i Why i'll talk that? about this a little later but okay we'll get there they just well, i mean so they they treat they, one, the way that they train, like the things that these captains are learning, 
like I learned as a second lieutenant and like the things that like, so like, I feel like as an infantry officer, one of my, my, probably my most important job in, um, like a, a large scale combat operations is like to get my, to get my dudes as close to the enemy as I can before they have to shoot their guns. Right. So like, how do you echelon your fires to close with the enemy and destroy them? Um, the army infantry dudes, they don't learn that stuff. Yeah. So like, I, I mean, you know, so, and they, they, there was some good dudes there, right? The 75th Ranger regiment guys, those dudes are all studs. Um, you know, and then like, th- there's, there's definitely some, some good, some good dudes among, in the army, but on the whole, I think they're, their top 10% and our top 10% are probably the same, but our, our top 40% are better than the rest of the army's 90% that they got. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, but phenomenal experience. I learned a lot. I was ready. I was ready to take an infantry company, um, get orders initially to, to two eight, uh, one uh, eight had a guy get like a guy who was inbound got hurt. Uh, they needed a rifle company commander pretty quickly. Um, so like I said yes, and then like the next day I went to one eight checked in, um, did change of command like the next day. A week later I was in Fort Bragg for a month long, like training evolution. Came back from that about a month and a half later. Uh, went to ITX, did that thing. My company fucking crushed ITX. And ITX um, was in uh, 29 Palms where everybody yeah, accumulates yeah. and has this huge exercise and says, after you're done with this exercise, then you've graduated and you're ready to deploy. Right. Yeah. So the so the boys fucking crushed that shit. Like they just, they did so well at, uh, at ITX. Nice. Um, you know, a few months later, uh, deploy as the crisis response the crisis response uh, element of the SP MAGTAF, Special Purpose MAGTAF Crisis Response Africa. Um, so we're based out of Siganilla, Italy. I remember deploying like sometime in April. I land um, in Siganilla. I had sent like my the advance party forward, so like my XO and like some fucking of my staff. As soon as I land, my XO is like waiting for me at the bottom of the stairs in the airplane, and he was like sir, you need to come to the, the jock, the joint operations center, like right now. And I was like, Oh shit. All right, cool. Um, so like we landed, I, I came in with two platoons, um, within, you know, six hours of landing. Um, we were like jocked up, like on alert, um, supporting the evacuation of some soft forces, uh, out of Libya. Um, this was 2019 and like the Libyan civil war was heating back up. So like from the, from the East, a a large like column of like armored column of vehicles was like moving towards uh, the West where Tripoli is. And like, we just had to get some dudes out. So we support that, get the dudes out, um, you know, fucking hang out, do some exercises, go down to Africa, do some stuff down there come back um 
And at this point, like I had, I think I had been selected for major already. Um, but I, I didn't know if I wanted to stay in the Marine Corps anymore. Cause like I wanted to be a company commander, but I didn't even know, I didn't really even know what majors did. Like majors are just like annoying staff people. Like I don't want to fucking do that. Sounds yeah. dumb. The guy that asks all the questions. Yeah. Like the guy who's like, yeah, the guy who like doesn't get any sleep. And like builds yeah, PowerPoints. For sure. I don't want to do that. It sounds dumb. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, the, but the, this is, and this is important to the Afghanistan story. Yep. So the command element for the SP MAGTAF was the 24th MU headquarters element, right? So you basically take, take the MU, um, which is, you know, the command and control element for, um, that that type of deployment because they were off cycle the muco a guy named uh colonel eric cloutier uh and his operations officer a guy named colonel uh chris richardella um were my co and operations officer on that deployment as a company commander right so i started working with these guys in 2018 and so I get picked to be the operations officer. Fast forward. Uh, now, like Lieutenant Colonel Richardella takes over 1-8, my battalion. So we have, we've known each other for like a couple of years at this point. Good. Um, Colonel Cloutier, one, so 1-8 gets reassigned from doing a UDP, like the deployment to Japan, to doing the 24th Mew. So now Colonel Cloutier and I have known each other for you know, for, for that four year period. Nice. Right. So, so we don't even have to talk to each other to know what the other people are thinking. Yep. So there was like the super tight bond between like the core group of people, um, at the, at the leadership level, um, before we went into Afghanistan. And there's a couple other people too, like my battalion gunner was with us for the full four years. Right. Yeah. What's his uh, name? The battalion sergeant major. Uh, Bill Callen, he just retired. Nice. Le- super legit dude. Yeah. Um, the sergeant major was in 1-8 for the full four-year period. He was a first sergeant in Bravo Company, then he moved up to be the sergeant major. Uh, and then the other pieces we got bolted on, um, you know, that we called it the, the in, in the battalion, we called it the big six, right? So the CO, the XO, the sergeant major, uh, the, op, the OPSO, which was me, my ops chief, which is a, a master gunnery sergeant, so an E9, and then the battalion gunner, right? The big six. Like we were, we got super tight. Um, and we were we were all we all made each other work harder um and be better than we would have been as individuals. Awesome. So um, you know, I get picked to be the operations officer, COVID hits, we gotta figure out how to train during COVID. We did some pretty unique um, things to make that happen. Like when no one else in the Marine Corps was training, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines was in the field fucking getting after it. Um, you know, like do the workup for the Mew. That's incredibly challenging. It's just a Mew workup is, is probably the, the most difficult workup you can do in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, so like the from the beginning, our metric for stress was changing. Right. Like what, what was stressful to me at the beginning of the workup was not stressful to me at the end of the workup. What was stressful to me at the beginning of the deployment before we went to Afghanistan 
was not the same as before, like right before we went into Afghanistan, right? Because we get on the boats, we do the things, we're gone, we're we're in Europe. Had no had no clue that we were going to go into Afghanistan. Um, you know, we deploy in like February of twenty one. Uh, around May, we start getting like indications and warnings that like, hey, this this thing might be a little messy. Um, if we withdraw from Afghanistan, right? Because just uh, withdrawals are, are always inherently messy, right? It's one of the hardest things to do uh, in, in the military. So in May, without permission, like 1-8, we started planning for different contingency operations. Like, well, what if we need to go seize the airport in, um, in Kandahar? What if we need to go seize Bagram and like re-clear it? What if we need to go occupy HKIA, the Hamid Karzai International Airport? What if we needed to set up a remote um, ECC, so evacuation control site? What if we needed to go secure an area out in the desert and get people to come to us? So we started like working on all these plans. Still, like we had no idea that this thing was going to happen. Um, we get orders to go into uh, CENTCOM, the Central Command Area of Operations, around like the end of May, early June. Um, it just just to move us a little bit closer to the theater if we needed to if we needed to actually execute something. Uh, so while we're there, we do we go to Saudi Arabia. Half the battalion goes to Saudi Arabia, the other half goes to Jordan. And we do what's called a theater amphibious combat rehearsal, attacker. So basically, we we tried to recreate Twenty Nine Palms in the desert of Saudi Arabia. Um, and it was this was probably the most beneficial training evolution that we did in preparation for Afghanistan. And it was not supposed to be um, just because of how the military is like it's always a fucking shit show trying to get anything done. So a lot of the stuff that we needed, we did not get in Saudi Arabia. So like for me as the operations officer, I'm doing command and control of the battalion. So instead of having like a bunch of computer systems and, um, you know, all this like fancy shit to do that, we literally use, we use maps with push pins and we use whiteboards to track everything just cause that's what we, that's what we were, that's what we had available to us. Um, and it ended up being, that's, that's the exact same thing that we had in Afghanistan because nothing was fucking set up when we got there. Um, so that was like super stressful in the moment, but now because I went through that stressful experience, my metric for what is stressful has now changed. True. Right. So, so I can, I can take a lot more, um, unknowns and all kind of stuff because I know that the crew is going to figure it out. Yeah. Um, so we get off the boats, we get, we get back on the boats after that and we're just hanging out. Um, and then things start to happen like pretty quickly. We send some, we send some folks into Afghanistan as like, uh, it's kind of like a little advon, like a, just like a forward element to kind of give us the vibe of what's going on on the ground. Um, this H Kaya is, is half civilian, like half military airport. Um, so the, the Turks were in charge of security. Um, of 
of basically the airfield and like the some of the critical gates um and then 515 which is like the a one-star marine corps command that is tasked with doing crisis response in central command um they're also a a jtf so a joint task force uh headquarters so they're supposed to be able to incorporate elements of the joint force you know so the army the navy the air force um and the marine corps and orchestrate those elements um through a like a unified command and control uh node so they had already started there had already kind of started flowing into afghanistan uh so they had a lot of stuff set up for them their systems but like nothing was set up for anybody else so i'll, I'll never forget um august 12th and uh we're we're like we we get off the boats the whole battalions in kuwait we've been rehearsing for a few weeks of what the of what we think the neos the the non-evac uh, the non-combatant evacuation operations are, are neo what that's going to look like um been rehearsing for a few weeks and president biden gives a speech and he's like within 24 hours you know marines will be in afghanistan to assist with the evacuation and we're like oh fuck like that's us we're like this thing's actually happening so cool you know that was like at nine o'clock at night on the 12th how'd that make you feel going into that with the president of the united states saying hey uh, Marines are going to be on the ground and you knew you were that group. I think back to something that Cam Marshall told me um, while we were at, where we're still at school. I think this was like second semester of senior year. And he's like trying to like teach us how to be proper Marines. Like this is how you like tie a tie. And like, I think he was like showing us how to do our taxes or something. <laughs> I don't know, something fucking Marshall just being Marshall. Um, and we were asking him like, now, what does it feel like before you go into combat? And he was like, it feels like before you play a football game. Like the butterflies are there. You're nervous. Um, but you know you've got a job to do, right? And you focus on that. And just like, just like a football game, just like in combat, like the first, at least for me, like the first – the first time you around cracks by your head, you kind of, it's like the first hit in a football game. And after that, like you're just playing, right? And like, hopefully, hopefully you practice well, hopefully you prepared well, because you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to fall back to the level of your preparation. Um, so that's what it felt like. It felt like I'm in the locker room about to run out into the field. Nice. Um, so, you know, that's like at nine, um, we, we had to do a bunch of other shit to get our stuff ready. Um, so I ended up going to sleep at like, you know, it's like four or five in the morning, uh, get a couple hours of sleep, drive to a different base in Kuwait, um, get on an aircraft, you know, after that whole, it takes forever to fucking get on a military flight. Right. So we end up getting to Afghanistan at like it's like midnight, one, two in the morning. It's either the third, I think it's the, it's probably actually the 14th when we land. Um, and before, before we went on here, I went and looked at my, I, I wore a Fitbit at the time, you know, like a little Fitbit watch. Yep. 
And I went and looked at my watch um, just to confirm that this is actually true. So I'm not lying to you. So from the from the 13th to the 17th, I have no recorded sleep data. No recorded sleep data. I know I slept Four days. for like 30 minutes here. Yeah, for like 30 minutes here, you know, like, but so we get there. Um, the, the things that we had planned, um, some of the things we had requested just hadn't arrived, right? So we had to adapt, right? So we were, the reason I didn't sleep the first night is because we were trying to figure out how to make this evacuation process work. But things were still relatively calm outside the outside the airport. Um, I think it was the night of the the night of the 15th um, is when the the on the 15th, the Taliban came into the city. Um, at the time, we had 197 Marines from 1-8 on the ground. Um, when the Taliban came into the city, the, the external security of the airfield um, was manned by like Afghan army soldiers, Afghan border police. Those dudes just, they just fucking left. They just left, right? So now with my 197 Marines, we have to make some decisions. Uh, so we we move our what was supposed to be our QRF or Quick Reaction Force company, and we put them uh, on external security, right? So they go and like man some towers, they go to gates, like. But I mean, H Kaya, the airfield is pretty big. It's like four. It's like maybe four miles That's long, huge. two miles wide. It's like. Um, so I. I we send, we send dudes out to like these positions and within two minutes of, of everybody getting in place, we get our first reports of contact. Right. So, and I'll never forget. It was like a corporal. I can't remember the kid's name, but he just, he radios back to the, the COC or the jock where, where I was. And he was like, um, he's like, we're taking, it's like, I'm taking accurate sniper fire. 800 meters, uh, 800 meters, 327 degrees magnetic. It's cool as fuck. And I was like, man, okay, I guess this shit's about to get real. All right, so then, you know, during that day, um, we're going and like assessing gates and like trying to make sure that nobody could get in through these gates. Um, at one point, like it, we start taking like sporadic contact from outside of the city, right? Because um, HKI is in the, in the low ground. It's kind of in a bowl and to the, to the North is like to the North and, and East. I'm pretty sure is like mountains that kind of like wrap around the city of Kabul. So there's like, a, and then around the city, there's like high rise buildings. Like, I mean, you know, like 10, 12 story buildings in the city. So there's a lot of good places to shoot at people from in the air, in the airport. Um, so we start taking contact, like from, you know, just all around the city, nothing super intense, um, at first. And then like, uh, we started getting shot at, uh, by a dishka. So it's like a, Machine gun. a 12 point, yeah, 12.7 millimeter. It's basically a 50 cow, yep. right? A, a, a Soviet 50 cow. It starts shooting at us with this thing. <clears throat> um, 
I think they were trying to hit planes, but they they weren't hitting the planes and they were like hitting they were shooting from the north to the south um, towards Abbey Gate, where the eventual suicide attack happened. Yep. Uh, but before before two one got there, like one eight had Abbey Gate. Um, so we started getting shot at from there and there's not a whole lot you can do because this thing outranges like your our, our you know IARs and our M4s. Um, so like one contractor guy like got his hand blown off by a disc around and like, you know, it's just, it was like a little, it's just a little crazy. Um, so that was that day. And then that night is when the Taliban like really rolled into the city. And what we found out kind of later on is they had set up checkpoints outside the Southern portion of the airfield. So if you think about HKIA, like the Southern portion of the airfield was like at least a piece of it was the civilian terminal, like a normal airport, right? So like any, like BWI, like DFW, you know, any airport, just a normal ass airport. Um, so not super tight security there. So like the, they had set up checkpoints outside of that and they were forcing people into the airport. Like they were like shooting people outside of the airport and forcing them in. Um, so it's like 10 o'clock on the 15th, I think, 10 o'clock at night. And we see just like, oh, like a horde of people like storming the airfield, you know, like 5,000 people. And again, like we got, we got 197 Marines, right? So we go to minimal security uh, externally and we push as many people as we can to this airfield to basically like make a human wall to stop these people from running across and like swarming the, the C-17s the big like cargo planes that were flying in and out um, and like to stop them from getting to us. Like, cause we don't know who is in this crowd. Like, is there a suicide bomber in this crowd? Is there like yeah. people who have weapons? Um, we also had some uh, 10th mountain guys, some army cats, right? 10th mountain. was fucking awesome. When you say 10th, had a bunch of vehicles. 10th mountain. What does that mean? 10th mountain division is an army unit. So these guys were from 10th Mountain Division. Um, I don't remember their specific units, but I remember there was Task Force Polar Bear and Task Force Wild Boar. It was basically like company size elements. So, you know, like 100, 100 dudes. Uh, and they had these big, like, mine-resistant vehicles with machine guns mounted. And they were out there with us too, right? So it's 197 Marines and, you know, maybe 200 soldiers. <clears throat> gotcha. When this whole thing went down, I was thinking, okay, Jordan's got his guys. You said they were, uh, you know, 159. Who else was with you and who else reinforced you at some point? I think you just answered at least one of those questions. So, Yeah, so on the airfield proper, um, 10th Mountain was with us. Nice. Eventually... Um, some guys from second battalion, first Marines came in like they're, they're so two, like one. an initial. Yeah. So two, one came in, uh, with a company. Um, so we had them on the airfield with us. Um, but you also got to keep in mind, this is why I say I don't like the army, right? Cause the 82nd airborne division, 18th airborne Corps, they were to my knowledge, right. And I, I probably knew the most about the planning for this operation because I fucking did it all. Um, 
they weren't supposed to be there, but they were there. They stole our planes. And like, instead of Marines coming in, we had 82nd Airborne soldiers coming in. Um, and there were some of those guys there, right? And the 82nd, you know, it's a, there's some solid dudes in that unit. There's some solid leaders. There's some, it's a, it's a good unit overall. Um, when there was 197 Marines on the airfield and there was an entire army battalion from the 82nd Airborne, uh, not on the airfield, they were in a compound getting their gear ready making sure they had comms. Like I had, at one point I had a plane land, right? We got some, we got some dudes in from Charlie company. Um, when we had pushed the, the, the humans off of the airfield and like those dudes didn't, they got off the plane and they went into the line. Like they literally, they walked off the plane and instead of going, instead of turning left to go like drop their gear at wherever, wherever they were going to sleep, they turned right and went into the, into the fray on the airfield. Nice. That's what we were doing. And those dudes, I, but anyway, I'm not gonna, I don't want to, um, bad mouth, a, a sister service, yeah, uh, especially sure. in, in the current context of what I do. But so that, I mean, that lasts until the 17th, right. And we get in a couple of gunfights on the airfield, um, with the Taliban, you know, we, we probably kill, like a squad, squad reinforced on the airfield. We killed some more of them outside the airfield. Um, I think, I think after that, they kind of stopped fucking with us on the airfield because they knew, at least like the the dudes in in the green frog uniforms, they'll kill you. <laughs> and we did. Like we we just killed them. Um, so then this Afghan special forces unit comes yes. onto the airfield and, and like, this is like, it's like the best worst thing that I've probably ever seen. Yeah. Um, I, I watched the uh, documentary and once, yeah. once those guys got on the airfield, it became clear. Now tell the rest of the story. Yeah, man. So um, I go back to the, I go back to the jock. Um, because I'm like, yo, like we're about to be overrun. And like, if, if we're like, if they make it to where we are, like we will all die. Like there is no, like there, there is no way out of this place other than opening this airfield and getting air airplanes to come in to like, give us food, give us water, give us ammo. Like we, we just don't, we just, there wasn't enough. Um, so I go back in and I'm like, yo, like, is there any, anything else we can do? And one of the army guys was like, I just got word from like the, I don't know who, from some spooky people who work for the government, um, that like 1100 dudes, uh, 1100, like Afghan special forces guys are coming to H Kaya from this, this place called Eagle base. It's like a, a few miles away. They'll be here at like, you know, whatever time. And I was like, all right, I'll believe it when I see it. So the time comes around, these dudes aren't there. Uh, you know, a couple a couple more hours go by and like these dudes show up. And it's like, it's like 1100 dudes and like 700 trucks. And um, 
they like link up with us and we're like, Hey, they're, they're like, we're going to clear this airfield. So just have your guys back up a little bit and we're going to clear the airfield. And we're like, okay, cool. Um, and they took their trucks and they took their machine guns and they took their pistols and their AKs and they went onto the airfield and they ran people over. They shot them. Some people got executed. Like it's like, uh, it was like lawnmowers in the dark mowing down <clears throat> blades of grass, but the blades of grass were human beings. Yeah. Um, and when the sun came up the next day, there were no, there were no bodies on the airfield. Yep. They had moved them all. And there were also no people on the airfield. The airfield, and the airfield was your mission. Right? Yeah. We, I mean, if that thing wasn't open, the evacuation doesn't happen. Like the supplies don't get in. We don't, we don't leave that place. If the airfield isn't open, man. Yeah. They found a way. Yeah. And like I said, it was, it was like the best, worst thing I've ever seen. Cause it's like, you haven't slept in four or five days. Yeah. You've hardly eaten any food in, in 17 days in Afghanistan. I lost 23 pounds. Nice. Fucking, I, know, I say nice is because I'm trying to lose weight. So <laughs> I'm like, hey, you know, I, I don't wish to go through anything like that. But at the same time, like those guys come in and, and they they clean shop. You know, they knew what they had to do to clear the airfield. It might not make any political sense at all. But they found a way to make well, it we clear without getting in trouble because that's their culture, right? Really yeah. is a culture. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know who these dudes worked for, but it wasn't me. Um, but they, they did what we couldn't do. Like, yeah. one of the things that um, I'm really proud of is like throughout this whole thing, um, we did that and that whole evacuation one eight without inflicting, without killing any civilians. Awesome. Um, you know, some some got hurt inadvertently um from through some of the non-lethal munitions we were using at the gate which i'll get into next but um didn't kill anybody awesome no that then that's a really good point like dude you're gonna sleep well forever by doing that and and those guys that uh that came in and cleared that airway that one day it's just a different beast right this is me being an outsider looking yeah. in like, um it's just you know i live with the i, I live with the afghans for a year i can imagine that i can visualize that scene and being like they'll wake up tomorrow just okay they'll be fine you know but if you were to like order people to go do that you wouldn't be able to wake up the same way right so um you know that's my take on it but yeah. Um, so the airfield's cleared. Now we can actually start doing what we came there to do, which was the evacuation. Evacuation was a shit show. Like as a as a as a withdrawal always is. Like I already talked about, but I mean, like you know, Marines are trying to interpret um, different documents that these Afghans have when they're coming to the gates. 
And like, we're not trained for that. Like, I don't know what your special immigrant visa paper looks like. Um, you know, so like we, but the gates were a whole different kind of beast. Like the gates were like, you seen the movie, uh, 300. Yeah. It's been a while. It's been a few years. So like, you know, like the, the Spartans, like they like, like lock their shields together. They make like a shield yes. wall. That's basically what we did. Yep. Like at these, at these gates, right. Cause there's, I mean, there's tens of thousands of people outside who would want to get in. Uh, just desperate, like yeah. people who are afraid. Like who, I watched the, uh, you know, have I watched the documentary, and maybe that's just a a small glimpse of it. But yeah, you get yeah. you get a lot of emotion so, coming out of that. Yeah, so I mean, you know, for God, I mean, really, the rest of the time we were there, up until the last couple of days, um, that's what it was. Every single day, just desperate people doing desperate things to leave a desperate situation. Um, so one eight had North gate, um, which is on the North side of the airfield. And then we had East gate, which is actually in the South of the airfield, maybe six or 700 meters away from Abbey gate, um, where two one was. And then we go through the whole thing. Like we're working with the Taliban that took, I mean, honestly, man, for me, like because of everything that had already happened when I, when they told me like, Hey, we're working with the Taliban now, like tell your dudes, don't, like stop killing them. Um, I was like, okay, cool. Whatever. Like we like, if, if that is what is going to happen, like fine. Like there was, I had no emotion about it. Yeah. Not because, um, not because I agreed with it. Right. But because like my focus was accomplishing the mission. Yeah. So they became a, a tool to help us do that. Yeah. Um, it, it was weird. Like there were some tense moments between us and the Taliban, like for sure them, yeah, them telling like our Marines, like, can we have some water? We'd give them water. We want cold water. Mm. You can't have cold water. We're going to kill you if you don't give us cold water. Like, okay, well try. try like we'll, that's fine. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Thanks. you know, shit like that. But like, the gates were a whole different beast. Um, we used up all of Marine Marine Central Command's non-lethal ammunition for the year in 24 hours. Um, so we were just constantly getting non-lethal stuff flown into us. Um, Cause like the crowd would, the crowd, we would be able to push the crowd back, like human muscle power would push these people back. We create a little perimeter, we'd get some people in, um, then the crowd would surge forward. We have to fall back. Then we'd have to throw some non-lethal shit at them. So they get like disoriented. Then we go out and fucking fight them back, um, create another perimeter. And we just did that for, you know, two weeks or whatever it was. Um, but, and, you know, at the gates, the, the stuff on the airfield, like the people shooting at you and, and shooting back, that's whatever. Right. Like, I don't, I don't think about that. Top shot. Um, well, no, I mean like there's like, fucking machine gun bullets like kicking up around your feet and like there's no cover like you can't like you're on an open you're on an airfield you just got to take it right because what are you going to do run away because the then the people will storm the airfield right um are you going to go into the crowd and like use the people as shields no right you just fucking stand there and like take the bullets hopefully they don't hit you and when you see the the dude that's shooting them at you you kill him and that's that's what we were doing right so i don't feel any type of way about that that's like not, not at all. Um, the thing that 
the thing that um, I think about at, is at the gates, man. Like when you when you when you pull like dead babies off a of razor wire. I don't care who you are, man. Like you're not the same person after that. Yeah. Um, and that's what we were doing every fucking day. Every fucking day, man. Uh, it was tough. It was tough for me. It was tough for the Marines. Um, I mean, but everybody like in the moment compartmentalized and just did their job. I'm so proud of those dudes, man. Like, um, you know, like it's just people talk about, uh, like this generation of kids and they're soft and like, you know, they want to, I don't know, whatever kids do these days that like people think is weird. I, I, I got, I have evidence to the contrary, man. I seen, I mean, the first, the first Taliban dude that we killed in the airfield, it was a Lance corporal, never been in combat before some Taliban dudes pop out on like this loading dock on the Southern side of the airfield and start shooting AKs, uh, start shooting AKs at us. Um, nobody freaked out. This kid takes a knee, threads the needle through the crowd at about 200 meters and just shoots this dude in the fucking face, kills him. Like you think that this generation is like soft and maybe they are right. Maybe they are on a whole, but like the, the, the kids that I worked with, the Marines at first battalion, eighth Marines, there wasn't a soft motherfucker in that group. Those dudes fought, those dudes killed, those dudes saved 124,000 human beings. Fucking proud of those boys, man. Yeah. <clears throat> but yeah. Leadership matters, brother. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, man, you know, we, we did that thing, um, on our, the, the, the attack happened, uh, I think it was on the 26th of August. Um, you know, and that just, that's just bad luck for two, one, man. Like that could have happened anywhere. Yeah. We were in such close proximity to the civilians that could have been at one of our gates. Dude. They were doing everything right. Where were you when that's that C-17 took off on the runway when the Afghans were on the wheelbase. You know, a lot of us in the corporate world have this escalation requirement when you hit the CNN factor. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that CNN factor, yeah. you got the, something's in the news. Where were you when that C-17 took off and someone posted online and it hit the news that one day? Uh, I was in the jock, man. I was in the COC for that one. Um, we were actually uh, talking to the Apaches that were basically using their rotor wash. To clear the uh, runway out a little bit. Yeah to, yeah, to physically move the people out of the way. Um, so I, I didn't see it uh, up close. Um I actually didn't see the clips of it until we got back of the people falling off of the aircraft. Yeah. Um, so I was in my, 
living room, you know, on a weekend. I was watching the news and I saw that. And, you know, after learning you were in that, uh, you know, in that space during that time, I had to ask because I think we all remember when 9-11 took place. You know, mm-hmm. like, where were you when 9-11 happened? And yeah. when I saw that on TV, I thought that would be a, you know, a question to ask you, especially being there, right? Is uh, where were you when that happened? So, got yeah, it. And, and to be honest, with with that situation, just like with the, the thing with the, oh, we're working with the Taliban now, it was like, because so much weird shit had been happening, it was like, some people fell off of that aircraft, you know, and it's like, holy fuck, like, that's crazy that people would be that desperate to do that. But okay. The air, the airplane took off. That's good. Like, so it sounds kind of callous, but it was like just a blip. It was just a, that was just a day. Yeah, for sure. In the evacuation. And, uh, but it made the news. <laughs> yeah. Right. Something yeah. so important, yeah, it but it's just a blip. Yeah, it did. So gotcha. And then back to the Abigate story. So yeah, one eight, you know, Jeff Lenar was another guy in one eight back in the day. He moved on, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, he's got some memories there. One eight was in control of you know, of the initial, you know, evacuation. And then you had some reinforcements come in. Yeah. Some of those reinforcements took over this place called Abigate. Mm-hmm. And Abigate is where the dirty bomb popped up during that time, right? Yeah. Which unit was yeah. that? That was 2 1. 2 1. Second Battalion, 1st Marines. And when that happened, where were you during that time? Uh, I was in the jock um, for that. So. We had been getting threat reporting uh, that had been increasing for the days leading up to Abbey Gate. Um, you know, like it was, it was going to be a a car, right? We had like I think it was like a it was like a gold Toyota Corolla was going to like uh, it was going to be a V bid and a gold Toyota Corolla. When you say V bid, you mean vehicle born IED. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, for us at one eight and the gates that we had for a V bid to be a threat, it really wasn't a threat at Eastgate, um, because just the way the gate is designed, it really wasn't a threat at Abbey Gate, just because the way the gate is designed and like just the 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 sheer like the obstacles that we had built there. And then the, the volume of people, like you couldn't have got a car close enough to the Americans. Nice. Good work. But at North, at North, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that had no, that's just how the gate was built, man. Um, but at Northgate, there was like, like a no shit highway that was, you know, 15 feet from the gate, right? So we were very concerned that we were going to take a V-bid with a follow-on uh, ground assault at Northgate. So we took some pretty aggressive security measures at, at Northgate. Um, the Taliban, we asked them to set up a checkpoint for us to block traffic. They said no. 
so we had our snipers at Northgate and they basically disabled every vehicle that resembled any threat reporting um, with, you know, with, with 50, 50 cal, cal 762s. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. North Northgate was like littered with disabled vehicles. Nice. Right. But our, our sniper, our sniper platoon was legit. Like we had the sniper, the platoon sergeant, a staff sergeant who was probably one of the best infantry Marines that I have ever worked with. Awesome. Um, at night, he shot both tires on a moving motorcycle without hitting the driver or uh, any civilians in the crowd. Awesome. Like, our snipers were legit, right? So anyway, so threat reporting started started increasing. We knew that an attack was coming. We just didn't know where, right? So I remember um, being in the jock. We had UAS, right? So we had like, you know, drones flying overhead pretty constantly. I remember seeing uh, the smoke from the blast. I remember getting reports that there was a, a, a IED had gone off or a, a SVAST or I think the guy actually had it in a backpack, right? So a suicide bomber had hit at Abbey Gate. And then we got another report that there was another suicide bomber who had hit at the Baron Hotel. So the Baron Hotel was this compound that was adjacent to H. Kaya that the Brits were using to evacuate their people. Um, so we didn't know how bad it was at the time, right? But my, for me, everybody got sucked into that problem, right? And, and rightfully so, right? Because, I mean, you ended up with 11 Marines, one sailor, one soldier uh, killed. Uh, and then, you know, hundreds of civilians killed and wounded. Um, at the time, we there was we thought there was a, a follow-on, uh, like, ground attack that was happening there as well. So everyone immediately got sucked into that problem. Um, for me, I knew that I couldn't do anything um about Abbey Gate. It wasn't my unit. I'm not in control of those forces. Um so I kind of took a step back and detached myself from that situation and postured the force for anything else that could occur. Right. So um we we basically reinforced all of our other positions that we had around the airfield because uh, i'm thinking they're going to draw our attention here yep right so we get focused on that and then they're going to hit us from somewhere else yep. and like you know we're not going to be ready for it so i i, I detached myself from that <clears throat> abbey gate situation right because other people were working it um you know we when asked to provide support we we sent support but i mean you had a whole infantry battalion down there that had you know pretty much the same stuff that we had so they they had it handled right and and you know for uh, as horrible of a situation as that was like that that unit um kind of the same way that one eight like just figured stuff out and like got it done uh and just grew up like that unit did the same thing 
right? So 2-1 did everything that they could have done uh, in that circumstance um, to protect themselves. And then also, like, once the, the, the bomb uh, went off, to treat their to treat their wounded and uh, the wounded civilians and, and get them back to the little hospital uh, that was on the base. They, they did that as, as, as good as you probably could have done in that situation. So yeah, for me, I, I tried to detach and I tried to think about what is, what is the thing that no one else is thinking about right now? And that's what I need to focus on. Um, Cause there's, there's, there's certain things that only you can do as a leader, right? Like in my position, there's only certain things that no one else can do those things besides me. No one else can make the, no one else could make the, the forces move or whatever, right? I had to be the one to say it. Um, so while everyone else is thinking about that, what's the next thing? What's the next possible thing that could happen? Get, get your team not focused on the present, right? Get them to see over the horizon. Um, you know, whatever, and whatever distance that time horizon is for you, right? Maybe it's, you know, my, in my current job right now, you know, it's like six months I got to see out. At the at that moment, it was the next 30 minutes, right? I can see 30 minutes ahead. I need to get everyone else on my team to be able to do the same thing. We need to put the pieces in place to be ahead of whatever the enemy may do. So that's what I did uh, during Adam Gate. Gotcha. How about, uh, you know, through that whole documentary, um, how heavy of a hand did the Marine Corps have on the shape of that documentary with HBO? Do you have any insight to that? Or, I mean, it was approved by the Marine Corps, right? So, like, when the HBO guys came down, uh, this, you know, Marine Corps media liaison dude came down with them. He sat in the room while we were doing the interviews, um, you know, but I, I wasn't, the Marine Corps didn't say like, well, don't say this or don't say that. Like my interview, I mean, I probably got like, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm in there for 15 minutes of the hour and a half documentary. Yeah. I watched it twice. I did a, I did a, that was a five hour interview that I did with that, with those dudes. Um, and not one time did the Marine Corps, like did the, the, the liaison guy say like, Hey, you shouldn't say that or like tone it down here. Gotcha. Um, they just, they just kind of let us tell our story. Gotcha. Um, the destruction plan. I watched the, the tail end of it today. I was like, <laughs> man, that would have been a lot of fun. So for you during the destruction plan, did you have a certain piece of that that you had a lot of fun with? No, no, for me, it was, it was fucking annoying. <laughs> Um, because the destruction plan, one, it was a distraction from like what we were supposed to be doing. Right. Um, and two, what it actually turned out being was like us, like cleaning up shit for the Taliban. Gotcha. And like, this is another, another beef I got with the, the 18th airborne Corps and like how, like. The, the command relationships on the airfield were very confusing, right? I knew, I knew who I worked for. I know who my, my boss worked for, right? There was a one-star Marine Corps general that was there. But then after that, there was a, 
a two-star Navy Admiral and a two-star Army General, right? And I don't know, I don't know who was in charge, to be honest. I don't know which one of them was in charge, right? But one of them told us as part of the destruction plan to clean up all the, like the human filth that was at the airport from all the people like being inside waiting to get on planes. So like trash, shit, piss, whatever. Mm. Like we had to clean it all up. That was really frustrating. Um, I'm sure. But I mean, the Marines had a good time with the destruction plan, I think. Um, you know, like <laughs> opportunity to let off some steam, I guess. Yeah, that was my question Break to you shit. was like, where'd you, le- where'd you let off some steam during that time? But it sounds like you didn't. I, I started smoking cigarettes <laughs> during that time. Uh, gotcha. And I, I stopped smoking cigarettes when we, when we left after, after like a week or so when we were back in Kuwait. Uh, I was waking up every morning and I'd be like, man, I need to go smoke a cigarette to start the day. And I was like, I, this is fucking bad. I can't, I can't, I can't live like that. Good but, for you. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> and then how did you feel when you got on that plane to come home? How'd that feel? kind of surreal man like it didn't feel like it was over it didn't feel like uh you know it felt like the plane was gonna take off circle around and come back to the airfield because there's more to do um you know but once we were on the plane for like you know about an hour i knew we were out of afghan airspace um then you can kind of like sit back and you know, think like, man, what the fuck just happened? What do, what what just happened? What did we just do? Um, well, you know what you did. You know, like I. What you did was, uh, airlift a hundred twenty four thousand people out within a month, which was the uh, what biggest airlift in modern history. Yeah, I think it's the largest. Uh, the largest evacuation in, uh, at least airborne evacuation in, in human history. Yeah, for sure. And that's something to be proud of and something to, to try and sleep well with. So, um, yeah. crazy story. Your, uh, what's your most traumatic piece of that mission? Uh, thing that I always think about is uh, one night I went out to Northgate and before I even walked outside of the gate, they were bringing a dude in who had, who had his foot blown off. Um, we had some of those, those same special forces guys who uh, cleared the runway. Yeah. Were, were with us at, at Northgate. Um, and they had a pretty, they were aggressive with their uh, security posture, right? So they would, they were shooting rounds like, you know, inches away from the civilians, like into the ground, right? And this dude got hit in his foot with an AK round, and, like the front of his foot was gone. And so I, like, I'm, he's walking in as I'm walking out. And I was like, holy fuck, like, it's pretty crazy. Um, 
and I'm up there to see two of the companies do a turnover. Um, you know, so one company relieving another on the gate and, uh, the crowd started to surge forward a little bit. And then, you know, there was like this mom and a daughter, like a little kid, you know, maybe like two or three, um, that had gotten pinned in the razor wire. And like, she was holding the kid on the front and she was, the kid's back was in the razor wire and the mom was on top of the kid. And there was like a bunch of people on top of the mom. And we were trying to get uh, those people off, right? But I mean, the people who were on top of her, you know, it's not like they did that on purpose. There's, you know, 10,000 people, 15,000 people at this gate pushing against the Marines who are trying to push these people back. Um, and I mean, we were, I don't know, man, we did, we did everything we could to get the people off of her. We were shooting people with non-lethal shotgun rounds. We were throwing flashbangs. We were throwing nine banger grenades. We were, uh, like physically fighting people. Um, we finally get these, this mom and the girl out and they were just tore up, man just fucking torn up from this razor wire. Um, yeah, that, uh, I, I don't know if they lived or not. I don't know. I don't know what happened to them. Um, gotcha. But that, that image, that sequence of events sticks with me uh, a lot. Yeah. Got it. That's a tough one. Um, I've got uh, two young girls, and I uh, couldn't even imagine. So um, what about, you know, who's your favorite mentor? Let's let's liven this thing up. Let's, let's just bring oh, it up a little shit. bit. Like, so you got a good mentor? Yeah, I mean, I would say I got a few. Um, and I've talked about, I've, I've talked about them already, right? It's, it's the other five guys that were in the big six at one eight, right? So the CO, the XO, the Sergeant major, my master guns, my ops chief and my gunner. I still talk to those dudes, at least one of them on a daily basis. Nice. Um, you know, some of them, like, you know, obviously my, my battalion commander is a, is a senior rank to me. Right. But, I still talk to Colonel Rich about, you know, just random shit. He, he was a, he was a RSCO. He was a recruiting station commander too. So now I'll hit him up and like, Hey, like this feels kind of weird. And he'll, you know, he'll give me advice on that. But like, you know, the, the Sergeant major, I'll call him when I got a Sergeant major question, my ops chief, I'll call him when I need a bitch about something. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I call my, I call my gunner, uh, when I need to like be brought back down to earth. Uh, and then my XO, um, you know, who's, who's now a Lieutenant Colonel, who's taken over a, an infantry battalion this summer. Um, he's just, he's just the best. He's the best officer that I've ever seen. Why? He's just better. Why? He's, he's incredibly smart. He's incredibly intelligent. Um, he is, he is very well read. He is uh, extremely logical in his approach to solving problems. Gotcha. Um, he's a he's like a physical a physical fucking stud. <laughs> um, 
you know, he's just like, when you think of like, when I think of like, what is a, what is a Marine Corps infantry officer? I think of this dude. I mean, he's like six, five, like two forty, like just, just, and, but like, I don't know. He's just such a, with good experience. And he's like such a, yeah. And he's like such a good dude. Um, I'm, I'm going to look up to that guy forever, whether we're the same rank or not. Like he's just, he's just the best. He's the best of what the Marine Corps has to offer. Awesome. That's the best place to be with a mentor like that. Yeah, man. Uh, never lose that. And I yeah. think the big six, like you, you hit a couple times. Like if you're able to reach out and ask those questions, like, Hey, I'm in this dilemma and I have this problem. And I have to ask a question. I got five people, well, big six, but five people to ask those questions. And it's mm-hmm. based off of X, Y, and Z. I know who to go to out of those big six to ask this single exactly. question, get some good feedback, and go from there. So that's that's awesome. And, um, <clears throat> you know, with what you guys went through, I'm sure that bond will never never flounder so that's really yeah, cool. for sure all right <clears throat> a couple more questions we'll, we'll we'll cut this thing off um what's your biggest current struggle your biggest opportunity today my biggest struggle man i think it's um i think it's probably it's probably work-life balance it's probably being it's being selective with with my time and my effort. Um, in the in the job that I have now, uh, you can get you can get really sucked in to devoting your time a hundred percent to work. Well, who's um, the guy you relieved? His name was like, um, you know, he's the Houston big recruiter guy that has a big name. Um, Boston, maybe. Yeah, yes. yeah. L- Lieutenant Colonel Courtney Boston. He's he's, I mean, he's another one of those guys who like, man, I don't know how he did what he did. Um, you know, and re- being a recruiting a, a recruiting station commander is, um, you, it, nobody joins the Marine Corps to like be a recruiter, right? And like, there's all these, uh, like terms and acronyms and mathematical ratios like that you have to learn on the job. Um, and you know, so like it, I saw him in his third year as being a CEO and he had already seen everything. So he was like really, really good at, at, at just the recruiting thing in general. And he's just like a really good dude, a really good officer. Um, he's taking command of a artillery battalion this summer. Like he's just, he's just a, he's just a stud. Um, but you know, I still talk to him from time to time. And like, you know, he had the same struggles in his first year. Like, where do you, you have, like, like I said, you have to be very selective with how you spend your time and effort. Like, cause if, you know, I mean, last night's a good example, right? Like I'm, I'm doing work stuff in some form or fashion until eight 30 or nine 30 at night on a Saturday. Yeah. Um, you know, should I have been doing that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Right. But, uh, that's where I chose to spend my time that evening, um, gotcha. instead of spending it, you know, maybe somewhere where it could have been more productive. So I think that's my biggest struggle. I think my biggest opportunity right now, um, 
you know, I, I think both professionally and personally, I think is kind of on the same, kind of on the same plane. Like no one here is telling me what my schedule needs to be. No one is, I mean, I'm, I'm down here in Houston. My boss works in Fort Worth. His boss works in San Diego. Like no one's, no one's out here looking over my shoulder. So my biggest opportunity is also my, my ability to be selective with my time, right? I can, I can take the time if I need to, to, you know, spend time with my wife and my son. Um, awesome. I guess I could take the time that I need to, to, uh, you know, see my family, my family's in Texas. I've seen my family more in the last seven months than I have in the last, you know, 17 years. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a gift and a curse, man. Yeah. That's, that's a blessing when you get that time with the family mm-hmm. enough that you uh, might be able to take a nap with your son one day. Right. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, man. A little, little Sunday morning nap with the boy. That's awesome. All right. Final question. What's your price of admission, brother? So I, I saved this story for the end. Uh, and it's a, it's a Navy football story. Right. So you remember, uh, the end of the year you were going with your position coach and like, they would tell you like where you were, you know, like how you did in the off season, how you did in spring ball, yep. like what your, where your prospects are for the next year. So I'll, I'll never forget. I think this is end of junior year. And, uh, I go sit down with coach Johns and he's like, you know, you, your 40 time is this, your bench press is this, your squat is this, your clean is this, your, your pro agility is this. And he looked at me like dead in the face. And he was like, this conversation should be about how do we get you ready for the NFL draft next season? And instead we're talking about why you're a second or third string linebacker. And I was like, holy fuck. Like, so I say that to say my, I think my price of admission was um, humility. Right. I I had to be um, more humble than I had ever been in my whole life at Navy. And, you know, I I like to think that uh, I was a good teammate. I was a good friend. Um, But, you know, that, that was a position that I... I wasn't used to being in. So I had to, I had to humble myself um, and do what I could to support those around me from, you know, the, the sideline. Um, And I think that's kind of carried forward with me. And I think I struggled with it. Like I talked about towards the beginning of the podcast, like humility to the point of, of, I had like a lack of confidence. Um, and, you know, eventually I got my confidence back. But, yeah, man, I think my price of admission was being humble, knowing that um, you're part of a bigger whole. And if you if you can't be on the field, then what can you do to support those guys who are? How can you help them get better? What can you do to, to make things easier for them so that um, the group as a whole 
succeeds. So I think humility, man. Gotcha. I think that's the price I paid. There's no doubt about it. And uh, JE's time with me, I know, uh, you know, I've, I've said some things. I've uh, done some things. I've, uh, you know, probably pushed you a little bit too. Um, but that humility, you know, there's one time I said one thing that, you know, you know what I'm talking about. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Was maybe, yeah, Lacaw- I remember. Lackawanna. Uh, but that humility, that price of admission, that change, that, like, just what you said, you know, like before you played the football game, like, what's the next thing? And being humble, that price of admission goes a long way. So, dude, awesome. Appreciate the conversation tonight. Um, very unique conversation uh, with that whole, you know, Kabul situation and everything. But, uh, dude, awesome. Glad we get, glad I got you on tonight. And, uh, Tell the family I said hello. Yeah, man. You do the same. Uh, it was great to be on, Tony. This was this was good for my soul, man. I appreciate it. Good. Keep it coming. At one point, I'll do a, a group deal, and we'll all get on there and, you know, poke each other's souls a little bit. So. <laughs> yeah, man. 